Good morning. I know some of you are probably thinking to yourselves, what in the world does Daniel chapter 3 have to do with Mark 12, right? <laughs> well, I hope that you can see the connection before we're done here today. But uh, there is a close connection to what we're going to be studying in, in Mark chapter 12. Uh, but to get your mind in the same vein of thought that I believe uh, God would have us think about during our review of our Mark 12 passage, I want to begin to ask you a question about, about your, your life. And I want to do it by mentioning this fact that hypocrisy, hypocrisy is a blight on the human race. Hypocrisy is something that to one degree or another each of us struggle with. We may deny that fact, but Nevertheless, it, it is the case. Hypocrisy is birthed in pride, and it grows in the fertile soil of the fear of men. And each of us, whether or not we want to accept this fact, fear men. We want their approval. That's what the fear of men means. We, we, want, their, we want people to like us, right? Because we want to impress each other and gain each other's approval, we're very susceptible to hypocrisy. We, we want others to think of us in the best possible light, so we dabble in hypocrisy, saying or doing things that may leave a good impression, but really aren't completely accurate. It's like giving the impression through silence or misleading comments that you have a great daily time of worship. Or remaining silent when others are mentioning their personal struggle with envy or gossip or coveting or greed, so as to give the impression that you don't have those kind of struggles. Those aren't my struggles. Or taking credit for something that you didn't do, um, or at least didn't do alone. Uh, you had help, but never acknowledge the help. So hypocrisy is, is really something that, that we can't avoid because of our fear of men and because it, it fills our gaping need for significance. We feel better about ourselves when other people think well of us. Hence hypocrisy. In our story today from Mark chapter 12 verses 13 through 17 we're going to see hypocrisy on a blatant display and hopefully we'll learn something about ourselves and about God in the process. So let's think about ourselves as we go through this text. I try to remind you of this uh, often and that is to view the text under study, to view the sermon uh, as something addressed directly to you not as an opportunity to, to bash the, the Jews of the first century, but to actually maybe grow in grace ourselves. Behind the lessons of hypocrisy that we're going to see this morning is the greater picture of what is happening in the life of Jesus Christ at this time in history. Uh, an important and powerful part of this 
lesson today is hypocrisy, but we can't miss, it's important that we don't miss what the context is all about here. Jesus was in his last week of his earthly life. Passion week or Passover week was in full swing. The triumphal entry had just happened a couple days before when Jesus came into Jerusalem, was, was given a, a royal welcome by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and of course, this upset the Jewish leadership. He had already gone into the temple the day before, 24 hours earlier, to clean house, to turn everything upside down, literally, uh, which further angered the religious authorities. And then on this day, Wednesday, he, he had just finished a parable of the bad tenants who had abused and murdered the servants and even the son of the vineyard owner. And everybody listening knew that Jesus was talking about the religious leaders that were standing on the perimeter. So this, all this infuriated the religious leaders and pushed them to the brink of murder. And again, I said, as I said, this was Wednesday afternoon, Jesus was murdered 36 hours later. In this context, Mark 12, we have this remarkable story about one of the toughest questions Jesus ever faced and one of his most penetrating and memorable responses, which left, of course, his hearers amazed and even stunned at its brilliance. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Mark 12 and listen as I read verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. I was, I've always marveled at this, personally. Uh, what a response to uh, an impossible question to answer. What we see here is Jesus dealing with hypocrisy. Not just in the light of the lives of these religious leaders, but in the light of our own lives. So again, let, let, let us acknowledge the struggle that the religious leaders had with hypocrisy, but let's not miss what the Holy Spirit may be dealing with in our own lives this morning. So the way I want to begin this is by <clears throat> referring back to the text and showing you how hypocrisy is laid out wide open for us all to see. Hypocrisy on display. Jesus' enemies had thought they had caught him in an inescapable, unanswerable dilemma. But Jesus' divine wisdom brought to his mind the most profound answer, and I want you to see it. So the first thing I want you to notice <clears throat> as this hypocrisy is is on display is that his hypocrisy makes unnatural alliances. 
Hypocrisy makes unnatural alliances. Did you notice that in verse 13, it says that they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians were mortal enemies. The Herodians were the liberal branch of Jewish hierarchy, Jewish leadership, and the Pharisees were the conservatives, the liberals versus the conservatives. Same, same issues we have today uh, around us and in Washington. But uh, the Pharisees and Herodians were sworn enemies. They never cooperated. They, they said black if and only if the others said white. And so they intentionally kind of egged each other on and got into, into disagreements. They could not stand each other. But this particular moment in the life and ministry of Jesus was so critical to their thinking that if they didn't join forces, they would lose control of the population, lose their own position in society, and so they had to do this. They had to come together. They had to form an unnatural alliance that they never would have otherwise. Jesus was a threat to them, and so they joined forces. Their question, of course, was designed to trap Jesus. Jesus recognized that. No matter what he answered, he'd be in trouble. If Jesus would have said, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, he would have been condoning the practice of literally paying tribute, and that's the, the way the King James Version translates the word render. They would have, he would have been guilty of condoning the practice of literally paying tribute or bowing and burning incense to Caesar, in effect, worshiping Caesar. If he would have said, sure, go and pay taxes. But if he would have said, yeah, don't pay taxes, he would have been in trouble with Caesar and his governor, Pontius Pilate. You had to pay taxes. If you didn't, you were an insurrectionist and you would be put in jail and ultimately executed. No matter how he answered, he was in trouble. So let's think about ourselves. What about you? What about me? Do, do we make unnatural alliances to create a particular image, to satisfy our, our, our lust for acceptance? Do we hang out with certain people or do certain things so that others will think something that you're not about you? An unnatural alliance. The story in front of us also says that these guys demonstrated that their hypocrisy used flattery. Hypocrisy uses flattery. Their hypocrisy continued with this demonstration of flattery, trying to bump Jesus off balance, saying some things to kind of butter him up, sway him with sugary words, and then nail him when he was at his weakest point. And that's what we see here. We see that the use of flattery is always self-centered, even in our case, in our day. When you use flattery, you don't actually believe what you were saying. You are actually trying to butter up the person you're flattering, right? You're, you're trying to gain an advantage. You're, you're telling people what you know they want to hear, which in this case, these leaders thought Jesus may have wanted to hear this, what they didn't know about him, of course. And then also, hypocrisy shows itself here in, by using pretense. They acted like they had a sincere question. Oh, most wise teacher, we know you're not swayed by human opinion. Let us, let us delve into the depths of your wisdom on this one. Pretense. It's, pretense is really the sinful use of words to produce an advantage for the one speaking. 
It's when you say or do things with the motive to gain an advantage over the person you're dealing with. The religious leaders who were questioning Jesus had no interest in his answer whatsoever, other than to corner him and make him look bad, to put him on the horns of a dilemma so he would fall f- flat. Jesus knew this about them. He knew he w- they were trying to trap him with their question about whether or not they should pay this poll tax, this tribute to C- that Caesar required. And Jesus expertly navigated their lethal trap in the process he confronted each and every person present, and maybe each and every person in this room. Jesus' response to these questions. So if he would have answered in the positive, should we pay taxes to Caesar, he would have lost the crowd. He would have lost the Jews. They would have lost total respect for him. Um, All the Jews resented paying Roman tax, and they believed it was wrong because of what it meant. And what did it mean? It meant submission to Roman rule. It meant to at least acknowledging or nodding to the divinity of Caesar. And this is exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood against in the story you just heard, read from Daniel 3. Let's see how Jesus responded to this display of his hypocrisy. Divine exposure of hypocrisy. Do you remember where this this question and answer took place where the debate was taking place? In the temple, right? Anything that happened on Passover week happened in the temple or in the temple court. This was in the temple court where this took place. Um, This is the same place where the day earlier, 24 hours earlier, Jesus had cleaned the temple out of all the money changers. And it's important to know this. Why were money changers in the temple? Money changers were in the temple because it was against Jewish law to have Roman money in the temple. (laughs) And this will come to the forefront here in a minute. Roman money was not allowed in the temple, so there had to be money changers who would take the Roman money and give Jewish money in order to buy sacrifices for your offerings and so forth. To do commerce in the temple area. Roman money in the eyes of Jews was corrupt. So you couldn't come into the temple grounds with Roman money. Now, it's also important for you to hear that paying taxes to Caesar, as we're seeing here discussed, isn't like you and I paying taxes to the IRS, not related at all. Jewish taxes were paid to their leaders, but this was a Roman tax, and it wasn't about paying what they owed. It wasn't about paying their due, like our taxes are. No, it was about paying tribute, according to the King James Version, paying tribute or homage or worshiping, at least with a head nod, the divine Caesar who lived in Rome. But Jesus here addresses this. Jesus exposes their hypocrisy by first calling a spade a spade. Look what he says here in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, that was a kind way that Mark recorded what took place. You know how Matthew recorded this? Matthew says that Jesus said, you hypocrites, you guys know exactly what you're doing, you bunch of hypocrites. That's how Jesus responded to him. He called a spade a spade. Why are you trying to trap me? 
Jesus was never any good at, you know, beating around the bush, was he? From what you know about Jesus, he always went to the heart of the issue. He always found the juggler, didn't he? When he addressed things that were important. Jesus knew that he didn't have time to play patty cake with these folks, and, and I don't think we do either. E eternity is on the line. Do we really have time to, you know, just kind of dilly-dally along and hope this person comes to the right understanding? You know, when you're, when you're dealing with your children, you don't hope that they come to a right understanding. You make sure they do, all right? You've got to correct things as they are, but when it comes to others, we, we seem to resist that method, that strategy, and just let time move on and on and on and never really come to the point. Never really calling a spade a spade, never really addressing sin as it is. We like, in fact, renaming sin, don't we? So that it feels better when we talk about it. Jesus didn't act that way. He cut to the chase. He cut to the chase by calling a spade a spade, you hypocrites, he said. And then he went on to reveal the heart. He went on to why they were hypocritical. He, he addressed the, the, the DNA behind their hypocrisy. When, when Jesus asked them for a denarius, he was laying his own trap for this group of people who were trying to trap him. The image would, on the denarius, of course, would have been Caesar's. The inscription would have been a statement that affirmed the divinity of Caesar. And you had to actually go and buy a denarius to use a denarius. You had to go get your Jewish money, buy a denarius, or work for some Roman individual who would pay you in a denarius, but you just didn't have access to denarius. Remember, you couldn't have denarius in the temple. So whoever gave Jesus the denarius says that Jesus asked for a denarius and they brought one to him. They produced it. Whoever gave Jesus this denarius revealed where they stood, at least, as it related to the practice of Caesar worship. Oh, I've got one. Jesus' request of a denarius would have been something like asking a pastor about pornography and him responding, well... Let me think. Uh, someone give me a copy of a Playboy. And you'd go, huh. oh, here it is. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. That's exactly what was happening here with the denarius. Someone give me a denarius. Oh, here. Uh, oh, Ooh, we're not supposed to have these here. They were in the temple. <laughs> that kind of money wasn't allowed in the temple. The person who pulled it out of their pocket was probably one of the liberal Herodians. As we know, liberals are more apt to do anything to justify everything, right? We know that. Isn't that true? Us conservatives believe that. But Jesus asked them when they brought him that coin, who, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? The denarius was a silver coin with Caesar's image and printed on one side with the following words, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So a stamp of the bust of Caesar that said, Tiberius Caesar, 
the son of divine Augustus. And on the opposite side, and this is rich, was an image of Caesar's mom with the inscription, chief priest. I'm going to throw in a little mom talk. The Jews considered these coins to be miniature idols, and possessing them would be a violation of two of the Ten Commandments. And yet, somebody produced one, <laughs> one of these guys. And what were the commandments in case? Have no false images before you, was the first one. That's the second commandment. And since this coin was a symbol of submission to Caesar as the owner and the god of the person who possessed this coin, it violated the first commandment, have no other gods before you. So right off the bat, possessing a denarius, you were guilty of breaking the first and second commandment. And yet they produced it without hesitation, evidently. <laughs> Here's one. You wonder how many of them had those coins in their pockets. But here we also see in this story Jesus' remedy for hypocrisy. The divine remedy for hypocrisy. And if in fact hypocrisy is something that you and I struggle with, maybe this would be a time where, you know, you're attentive. Do you want victory over sin? Every Christian would say yes, of course. Do you want victory over the sin of hypocrisy? Yeah, I do. And so what did Jesus say is the solution, the remedy? In his answer, he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God's. That statement is profound and packed with important information. First of all, it tells us that we should do what's right with human authority. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Does it belong to Caesar? Give it to Caesar. Let, let's, let's think of that as the larger concentric circle of two circles. The larger concentric circle is what belongs to human authority, what belongs to Caesar. And now we'll, then we'll work our way inward to the more central, smaller concentric circle. The word that Mark used for render in our ESV copy, he, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. That word render refers to repaying something that you actually owe. Jesus was saying, you actually owe Caesar something, so pay him that something. Pay it back. The apostle Peter was there when this interchange took place. And he learned something from Jesus at that moment. And this is what he said about the institution of human government. This comes from Peter's pen, 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Peter heard Jesus. He knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. You want to begin to chip off the scale of hypocrisy in your life? Begin in a larger concentric circle by doing what is right with the authority, human authority, that God has placed in your life, whether it be the president, the governor, 
the city council, your mom, your dad, your teacher. Do what is right with human authority and do it honestly. That's where we start to get rid of hypocrisy in our lives. Paul said this, we saw this earlier in Romans 13. He actually said that God establishes human governments and their authority and they should be obeyed. Are they over you in some way? Human authority, yes, then do what they say. That's what Peter said, that's what Paul said, and they said those things because this is what Jesus is saying in our text today. The divine validity of human institution, Jesus established here in his answer, and it puts claims on our behavior. If you're an American citizen, you must do these things. The state has the authority to expect and enforce certain behavior. Jesus affirmed that here. John MacArthur wrote concerning this, the only time government may be legitimately disobeyed, and that's a question that first comes to mind, isn't it? When can we disobey the government if we're a Christian? When is it okay to be civil, to exercise civil disobedience? MacArthur says, the only time government may be legitimately disobeyed is when it commands something contrary to the law of God or forbids something commanded by it. And that takes some thinking, doesn't it? It does. God has, in fact, placed limits on human authority. There are at least two reasons that we can, from Scripture, resist human authority that He, God, has placed over us. The first is this. When asked to violate a direct command of God, when something the human authority says comes in direct conflict with what God has clearly stated, you cannot obey that human authority. This is what we see in Acts chapter 4 and 5, remember? They, the human authority that were over the apostles told the apostles to stop preaching. But God had already told them to keep preaching. And so they asked the council of human authority, what do you think we should do, obey you or God? You remember that story? There's an example for you. Secondly, when asked to betray our Christian conscience, when asked to betray that conscience that has been brought to life by the Holy Spirit in your life, he gives you a conscience that, is, that becomes greatly sensitized to God's will. And when the human government that is over us asks us to betray that human conscience, that's when we draw the line. You may work for a secular institution that would require you to be dishonest in some way. You would have to say, I can't. I'm sorry. Or ask you to lie for them or about them. I'm sorry, I cannot do that. That violates my Christian conscience. So Christians are called to obey their government except when it means to disobey God. We shouldn't cheat on our taxes, for example. We should obey traffic laws. I suppose that means we're supposed to show up for jury duty. What is it with jury duty? My wife has never been called to jury duty. I've been called five times. It's like, it is not random. They've got my picture on their wall or something. I don't know what it is. But I've got to show up for jury duty. We should 
pray for civic leaders who are over us, which we did this morning. And, and it shouldn't be something we just do corporately. We should. We're, we're commanded to by Paul. We should do it privately. We should pray for our leaders that are over us. This is what it means to submit to human authority. But defeating hypocrisy in your life begins on it by honestly honoring that human authority that God has established in your life. Secondly, the way we defeat hypocrisy or minimize hypocrisy is to do what's right with divine authority. Not just with human authority, but now let's go to the, the inter-concentric circle. The way that you're going to become less hypocritical is by dealing honestly with God in your life. When Jesus said, give to God's what it's God, what is God's, it trumped human authority. It trumped Caesar's authority. It trumped state authority. Although Jesus gave leeway to Caesar, which was the earthly authority at the time, he gave supreme authority to God. But give God's what is God's. Let me show you how God's authority trumps human authority. The coin is a good example that was under discussion. That coin had an image on it. That image was Caesar's image. And that image proved that that coin belonged to Caesar. And that, that's how they thought of coins in Jesus' day. Whoever's image was on that coin, that was their coin being loaned to me to process the economy. Whose image is stamped on you personally? So there's a stamp on this piece of metal, looks like Caesar, so it's his. God, when you were created, stamped his own image on you. What's that make you? His, right? You were his. His image is stamped on you, which means you belong to him. You answer to him, ultimately. God owns each of us if we indeed are made in his image, which the Bible says we are, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we bear God's image, don't we? Is what the Bible says. And we could go through a short discussion on what, how we know we have the image of God stamped on us. But that's for another day. What we see here is this being stamped with the image of God is a call for deep and abiding commitment to God. If God says it, it goes. Why? Because we belong to him. <laughs> we are his. What or who do we pledge allegiance to? What is, what is it that you've pledged allegiance to in your life? It's not wrong to pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, but our ultimate allegiance and pledge must be to Christ as the eternal king who rules over an eternal kingdom. And so as we think about dealing with hypocrisy in our life, we, we see that Jesus here is giving us a way to do it. He, he's giving us a divine remedy. And the first thing you do 
to deal with hypocrisy in your life is do what is right with the human authority that God has placed over you, honestly. Secondly, and, and this begins a, a, a habit, a, a practice of being honest, of being non-hypocritical. And then he says, do we see that we're supposed to do what's right with divine authority. How do we do what's right with divine authority? And a simple answer would be obey God, right? But let's break that down even further. I think, I, I think we can, and it's helpful. So you, you to deal with hypocrisy, honestly, we do what's right as it relates to divine authority towards God, whose image is on you, whom who made us in his image to be worshipped, not Caesar, but him and him alone, not material things, but him and him alone. If, if God has stamped his image on us, he owns us, and he owns us on multiple levels. Even if you're an unbeliever, at the minimum, God is the one who created you, and with that alone, the rights of ownership are there. We could also say, in addition to his creation of you, that he has rights over you or owns you due to the fact that he sustains you through life. Whose oxygen are you breathing right now? Right? And you say, well, I might be breathing his oxygen, but I've made my own way through this life. Have you? Who gave you your intelligence? Why are you so smart? Why are you so good looking? You know, or the opposite of those two things? You know, we would say God, ultimately. If you have an income, the Bible tells us it's because God has provided that income through the intelligence, through the talents that he's given you. So even if you're an unbeliever, you have a, a certain level of obligation to God because he is your creator. But for the believer, it goes even further than that. For those of us in this room who have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, by the way, Lord is an important word in that sentence, right? If we have embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior, there are many more ways in which we could say, God owns me. Besides the fact that he sustains me, he's, he's created me, it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20 that we've been bought with a price. He, as Pastor Rick said earlier, he created us and then recreated us in the process of salvation. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6.20. And, of course, with believers, he has also sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He's guaranteeing the process of becoming Christ-like. That sealing does. God continually, for the believer, takes specific interest in our well-being, both physically and spiritually. He, he's committed to you becoming like Jesus. He's watching out for you along the way, we would say, orchestrating all events that you experience for your good and his glory. This all brings us to the place of humble submission, right? What other response would be appropriate? Prideful hypocrisy? No. 
God does all these things in our life for his glory and our joy. And our response ought to be humble, humility. So we must pay to God what is due him. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. You want solutions to your hypocrisy? Be honest in your relationship with those in authority over you and be honest with the relationship with God. And this, and this flows into our relationships with each other. And this is where hypocrisy is revealed. It is, it is not so much in our relationship with governments or authority, human authorities that are over us. It's not so much in our mystical relationship with God. It, it comes down to hypocrisy. It displays itself most clearly in our relationships with each other. Which is why I end here in our text today. Doing what is right towards God includes doing what's right with each other. In other words, the primary way that you can love and honor God is by loving each other. That's how you do it. You say you love God, here's how you love God. Love the person sitting next to you or the person sitting in front of you or behind you. That's what Jesus said. That's how it works. The Apostle John addresses this very issue at length in his first epistle. Let me give you a flavor of it. 1 John 4, 10 through 12. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, or if he loved us in this way, we ought to also love each other. If God is so loving, this is how we show it. If God loves you so much, if I, if I want to love God back, this is how we do it. Love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John, the Apostle John was saying, people can't really experience the love of God except through you. The way that I, I demonstrate my love for God is by loving you and you loving me. That begins to eat away, chip away at the scales of hypocrisy. We start actually treating each other as we would like to be treated. We actually start treating each other with honor and respect and love because this is what we're called to do as those who've been transformed by grace. Render to Caesars the things that are Caesars and to God the things that are God. Friends, do you want to deal with the hypocrisy in your life? As maybe as minor as it is, I don't know, you know. But do you, want, do you want to rid yourself of that challenging sin? Then you, you must submit yourselves to the authority, honestly submit yourselves to the authority that God has placed in your life, including governments, spouses, parents, etc. And also submitting to God, which means you're submitting to each other. We are submitting to each other. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that these things that uh, we've heard this morning could be um, uncomfortable for honest people, um, uninteresting for dishonest people. 
I pray that your Holy Spirit, by your grace and mercy, would accomplish um, the sanctification that we need to rid ourselves of hypocrisy. We thank you for this particular period of the life of Christ this last week where he endured so much for our salvation. He took our sin upon himself that we might know forgiveness of sin, that we might indeed belong wholly and fully to God our Savior. Lord Jesus, please send your Holy Spirit into our lives, into our experience that we may know you, that we may know ourselves. And that we may flee from sins that, that separate us from you and flee to you, the one who frees us from all these things. We bless you. We thank you. Ask that you would work in us and through us this week as we uh, follow you wholeheartedly. I pray this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.